0: I'll read verses 4 through 6 again. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth. To Him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by His blood and made us a kingdom, priests to His God and Father, to Him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. This is God's Word. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would add your blessing to the reading of your word, that you would send your spirit to help us to understand. Lord, you are far greater than we can even imagine, than we can describe with words, Lord, you've made a great condescension, a great concession to us in even revealing Yourself in human language. And we struggle and we we wrestle to comprehend these things and and we know that there will come a day when we will see You as You are in Your Son. But until that day, we pray that You'd help us more and more as we look and behold through a glass dimly. I pray that You would Give light to our eyes of faith that these things that are written of you would be a great comfort to us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. This is an apocalyptic, prophetic epistle given by Christ through the pen of the Apostle John as a means of caring for the church of Jesus Christ, instructing the church, guiding the church, that church in the first century, the original audience, and by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and its application useful to every church in every location in every subsequent century and generation. And God the Father gave this message in order that the churches of Jesus Christ would be able to see and be reminded, would be able to understand that their experience in the world is not the final word. God's perspective is reality in the truest sense. Our, our culture sort of has fallen in love with reality television shows, and, and we know at this point, hopefully we're coming to realize there's nothing further from reality than what we see on reality television shows. And very often what we experience and what we think is reality is not what God sees. God has spoken and God's perspective is reality in the truest sense. The original audience and we as we read are beckoned to come up and to see what God sees. And John begins this Epistle, this word of comfort to the churches with a customary uh, or a custom epistolary greeting that we see throughout the epistles, grace to you and peace. We saw last week that that greeting is a summary really of the entirety of the work of redemption, uh, the work that God is doing in us and for us. Grace encompasses all of God's self-giving and peace... That harmony with God is the ultimate end that God is bringing us to through His grace. Objectively, it's been achieved in Christ. Subjectively, it's being worked out in sanctification. And ultimately, in glory, we will rest at final, ultimate peace with God. Harmony with God. Now, this letter, taken as a whole, or if we just wanted to take that greeting, Grace to you and peace will only serve as truly comforting in as much as it proceeds from a credible source. If I'm going to dangle from a cliff on a finger-thin piece of paracord, I'm going to take words of comfort and reassurance from someone who has themselves hung from a cliff on that size of cord... I would prefer them to be a little bigger than me. And when that person who has that experience says, trust me, it'll hold you, I'm going to look at them and I'm going to say, I I can take comfort in that. Over against a good old-fashioned, it should work, that's not very comforting to me, especially if you've not done it before. The point being, the source of a word of comfort plays a large role in the comfort itself. I don't want to just trust me from somebody who's not been there. So as we continue working our way through verse 4, we see that this letter and the grace in this letter that is meant to bring us to a place of subjective peace has a source. Grace to you and peace from. That's a preposition of source. It's telling us where the grace and the peace are coming from. And the source we saw last week is God Himself. The fact that God is the source, that God is the one declaring the grace and the peace makes this word effectual. It will accomplish that for which it was sent out to accomplish. Now, all of the epistles, if you walk through them and you see this introductory greeting, grace to you and peace, grace to you and peace, or whatever form it takes, they all give us a source. And the source is always God. I think in every epistle, other than this one, The source is from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I might have missed one, but I think that's pretty much universal. God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, mentioning two persons of the Trinity. In the same way, John begins by describing for us the God from whom the grace and peace are coming. The God whose perspective we are to see in the letter. So we might ask, seeing that it is an apocalypse and seeing that it is prophecy and understanding that we're meant to see an otherworldly perspective, we might ask, well, who is this God? Is His perspective really a credible perspective? Is, is, does He have a view from which I can actually take comfort? Who is this God? And here we have John's answer, and he answers not using the customary two persons of the Trinity, God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. He actually gives us three characters which makes the revelation exclusive in this regard. The three characters are delineated by the word from. So character character number one, grace to you and peace, from Him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before His throne. Or we might consider that the sevenfold spirit, who is before His throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings on earth. The book of the Revelation is exclusive in that Trinitarian language. And as we will see, as we work our way through the book, that this book is supremely theological. One one commentary that I have, the, the subtitle is, The Revelation as Canonical Capstone. This is the book that caps off all of Scripture and its theology is actually a capstone. That author, Brian Tabbs, says that God is utterly supreme and central in the apocalypse. We don't come to the apocalypse first and foremost to learn what's going to happen at the end. The book is about God. It's revealing God to us as we've seen in the person of Jesus Christ and yet at the same time it is supremely practical. Written to seven actual churches and to be used by all churches. So it it behooves us to go slowly at this point and really delve into this God. The whole point and the whole purpose of the letter is rooted in God. If this God is not a credible source there's no comfort here. The same goes with all of Scripture. All of Scripture is meant to reveal God to us, to bring us to understand God. But if this God is not a credible God, then we've not gained by learning of this God. And so I want to take this Trinitarian formula one step at a time. And so we begin with this first character, Him who is and who was and who is to come. Now if we have just a little bit of a glimpse or or understanding of, of Trinitarian theology, Even if we don't know a whole lot, we could come to the end and we could say, well, there's Jesus Christ. We've got God the Son. Right before that, we've got the seven spirits. Now, that's an odd to us. That's an odd way to think. But if I see the word spirit, I might say, well, let's assume that that's the Holy Spirit. Having read the other epistles, seeing this greeting from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ... I'm going to assume it's from God. I've got the seven spirits or the sevenfold spirit. Let's just assume for this week at least that that's a reference to the Holy Spirit. So if I've got God the Son and I've got God the Holy Spirit, then the first reference, Him who is and who was and who is to come, is a reference to God the Father. He's the only one left. And you can hear implicit in that language or in that title distinct references to time. Who is, who was, and who is to come. And so we are to see from the outset that God the Father is the eternal one. Now that doesn't mean that the Spirit is not eternal or that the Son is not eternal. But what John wants us to see here specifically is is the outworking of the eternality of God the Father. As our confession says, God is infinite in being and perfection. To be infinite means to be without limit, without bound with regard to space and time. And so if God has no limit with regard to time, we call that eternal. God is eternal. We see in Genesis 21:33, he is referred to as the Lord, the everlasting God. And in Romans 16:26, he's called the eternal God. Remember that time, as we know it, is a creature. God is outside of time because He created time. Time had a beginning. Time will have an end. But God is over and above that. He is without beginning. He is without end. God does not endure a sequence of moments. God has never been at one moment patiently awaiting the arrival of the next moment and the next and the next. That would make God the servant of time. And He's not the servant of any creature. He stands over time. Time, as it were, waits on God. He's outside of time. So we're seeing here the eternality of God. In this particular formula, John has taken the covenant name Yahweh as Revealed in Exodus 3.14. I am, or I am who I am. He's coupled it with a traditional Jewish rendering of that name throughout Jewish history and and even church history. You see men trying to interpret Yahweh. When, When Moses said, who shall I say sent me? God says, tell them I am. Yahweh sent you. Throughout history, men have tried to interpret that as I am, or I am who I am. We'll see a couple more in a moment, but John has taken that, blended it with the contemporary uh, Greco-philosophical view of time as divided into three categories, and he's using that title of God to remind the churches of Christ that God is the God who precedes time, stands over time, and yet He is the God who works inside of time. Some of those other Jewish renderings of the name, I will be who I will be. I am who I was and will be, or my personal favorite. And one commentator believes this is the one that John is referring to. I am who is and who was, and I am who I will be. See, all of that language is pointing to God's Infinitude, His immutability, His aseity, His independence, ultimately His absolute self-sufficiency. He reveals Himself in the bush that burns and yet is not consumed because God does not need fuel to burn. He picks an object, sets it on fire, and doesn't consume it to show that He is at one and the same a consuming fire, yet He does not need to consume fuel to burn. He's absolutely self-sufficient. The question is, how is that specifically relevant or pertinent to John's audience? Very often when we think of theology proper or study of the attributes of God, we think of it as merely scholastic or or merely philosophical. Like we're just grasping at straws and terms and words, just trying to come up with something. But really, at the end of the day, nobody has any clue about God. Is this actually relevant? Well, we know from the very beginning that God has revealed this so that His servants would know the things that must take place. This is a, a letter meant to be relevant to its readers. So then this reference to the name of God the Father and this description of God has to be relevant. From the very outset, John wants these seven churches and all churches by the inspiration of the Spirit to remember that in spite of their cultural situation... They can take comfort in God's contemporary presence, His historical existence, and His future appearance. And those are the three headings that I want to use to just walk through this description of God the Father. So first we see here His, God's contemporary presence. The Greeks divided up time into that which had been that which is currently and that which is to come. And we do the same thing. We say past, present, and future. And that follows the the scheme of chronology. The past came first and then comes now and later comes the future. But John doesn't follow that pattern. Notice. He says, Grace to you and peace from Him who is. And he starts with the present. When... God revealed Himself to Moses in the first person. Tell them, I am sent you. Here, John speaks in the third person, but he's basically saying the same thing. He is Him who is. And he uses the verb for being or to be, and he places it in an unqualified, ever-present state. Always now. And what that does is puts God in a category all of His own. He doesn't need any other qualifier. He is. For me, I have to distinguish myself. I can't say I am. That's a lie. If I say I am without qualification, that's a lie. I can say I am Paul to distinguish me from other human beings. I can say I am 33 years old to place myself in the the scheme of time. I can say I am here in Hidnight, North Carolina, to mark out my geographical location, I can say, I am delighted to be here, to clearly explain my emotional state amidst a plethora of other emotional states that I might find myself in at any point in time. But of God, these things don't have to be said. He doesn't need any other qualifier except He is or I am. There's none like God. He says in Isaiah 45 and verse 5, I am the Lord, and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. He doesn't have to say anything else, but I am. He's not getting any older. He doesn't say, have to say, I am this many years old. If time extended this far, a hundred billion years into the past, God is not any older today than he would have been in eternity. And in a hundred billion years into the future, God will not be any older. He simply is. He doesn't have an age. Psalm 90 verse 4 says, For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. A lot of people really get hung up on that a thousand years as a day. In the New Testament, this is its root. A thousand years are as yesterday, or as a watch in the night, a few hours. The point is... and, and indescribable period of time for us, to God, it might as well be a few hours. There's no comparison. He is the one who is. No physical location constrains Him. Solomon says, Heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain Him. He doesn't have to add any physical qualifier. Now, throughout the Scripture, we'll see Him say, well, I'm going to place My presence here, or I am the God of Bethel, or I am the God of this people That's not for Him. That's not to distinguish Him from other gods. That's to distinguish His people and their place from others in the world. He doesn't have to do that. He is the one who is. And He continues this way, unchanged, in an ever-present state. He says in Malachi 3, 6, For I, the Lord, do not change. He is, period. And He is God. He is the God who is, Right now, God is. In the first century, God is. If Jesus could say, before Abraham was, I am, then we can say, before Pergamum was, God is. And so as the saints in Ephesus were patiently enduring, wondering how long they would be able to stem the tide of false teaching, God says, I am. Or John writes, God is as the saints in Smyrna are about to suffer a great time of testing, John says, God is. In Pergamum, they had held fast to Christ. As the letter was read, they probably, there were probably even some in the congregation whose cheeks were wet with a tear as they were reminded of their beloved brother Antipas who had been killed for the faith. And John reminds them, God is. We could go down the list. The point is, God is not surprised by the circumstances that have arisen in these churches. God is not curious about what will be. God is not affected by the issues that are facing these churches. God is as He's always been. Now the last two weeks we talked about these things that cause us angst and worry or fear. If you think about it, almost every one of those have their root in the reality that we are creatures set in a scheme of time. We are servants of time. We have sequential moments. And so this is what anxiety looks like. At the present moment, I'm worried about what happened in a previous moment and how that might affect this moment or the next moment. Or in this moment, I can't enjoy this moment. I waste it worrying about what might come in the next moment. If we were not set in time, these things would not be an issue. God is. He's not subject to time. He's not subject to that system. Now think about the comfort that ought to be derived from that. God is not subject to this thing as I am. To see it worked out, turn to Psalm 46. I want you to see this applied in, in a practical way. Psalm 46. We'll, I want to read through the first seven verses. And I want you to just notice the tense of the verbs. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. We've talked before about how there is no storehouse of grace. God doesn't give us grace and say, "Well, just hang, hang, hang out, keep, hang on to that. You're going to need it in the coming days." He gives us exactly what we need in the moment that we need it. Now we're following this successive sequence of moments, and so we get worried. But God is. The very present help. Right when we need the help, God is our refuge and strength. Therefore, we will not fear. Though the earth gives way. Though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea. Though its waters roar and foam. Though the mountains tremble at its swelling. Now that, it's amazing how pertinent that language will be in the book of the Revelation, how how relevant that was. But God is the refuge. God is the strength. When these things happen, He is the refuge. Now, if these things are happening, well, we'll continue reading. Verse 4, "...there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved." God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage. The kingdoms totter. He utters His voice. The earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. If the nations are not raging, if the kingdoms are not tottering... If the mountains are not trembling, the waters are not foaming, the mountains are not moved into the heart of the sea, if the earth is not giving way, I don't need a refuge. While these things are happening over here, my refuge is not the fact that God might come and make all of this go away. My refuge is that in all of that, God is. I don't need a refuge if I'm not seeking refuge from something. And very often we think that the refuge is God coming and getting us out. That's not the refuge. The refuge is us going to God in that and finding the refuge in the God who is. And there's no weight with God. See, I don't have to, in a time when I might need a refuge, I don't have to say, well, I would go to God, but I'm pretty sure Christie's going to God right now. So whenever he gets done dealing with her, then maybe I'll go if somebody doesn't jump in line before me. There's no wait. There's no line. There's no elevator music and advertisements playing as I wait for God to pick up the other line. There's no call ahead seating. He is the present help. He is the refuge in the moment that I need the refuge. That's the God who is. Now we might begin to wonder what about this language of Wait on the Lord and be of good courage. Are we not supposed to wait upon the Lord? Does that not mean that when things get rough, I just sit and just hope that He shows up at some point? Remember that waiting upon the Lord is not twiddling your thumbs hoping that God shows up. Waiting upon the Lord is moving quickly through every means of grace that He's given to be at His side. It's getting near to the God who is. And as He is, there He is, our refuge. There He is, our rock, our help. It's Him. It's being near to Him even though all of the world is raging. It's by faith Exiting the realm of sequential time, finding our place at the feet of the ancient of days, and finding repose in Him. Comfort in Him. Not in the outworking of our circumstances. Him. That's God's perspective. God says, You've got to come out of the world. Come out. Rise above that and see what I'm seeing. I'm the refuge. Even though all of that is happening... He is the God who is the refuge he, because He is the God who is. Paul says in Colossians 3, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. That, that's it. I'm here physically. I have to be here. But by faith, I can set my mind upon a heavenly perspective. Throughout the Scriptures, the Spirit-inspired authors are speaking in language as a condescension from God to bring people who are enveloped in this sea of ever-fluctuating issues. Waves upon waves upon waves. The tide comes in and the tide goes out. It's up and it's down. It's up and it's down. That's where we live. The scriptural authors are writing so that by faith, the Spirit can bring us up, 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 above all of that and rest in the God who is. He's not, he's not subject to that. Now what that perspective does is it takes things that don't matter and reveals to you just how much they don't matter. See, when we're down here and we're looking at things, all we see is that thing in front of our face. We can't see the other side of it. And, and all of a sudden, it means a whole lot more than it ought to mean. But when we are able to come above from God's perspective and see that there's literally nothing on the other side of that, all of a sudden, that thing that we thought was so important, it's completely irrelevant. It doesn't matter anymore. The other side of that would be this perspective. Taking refuge in the God who is helps us to see things that we thought were pretty insignificant. When we can rise above them and we're able to see all that is going to flow from them, we see that they are actually far more important than we thought they were. We finally get a heavenly perspective, an eternal perspective. So we might look at a child and say, well, that's just a child. I'll explain the gospel from time to time. I'll deal with them in a a fairly general way. But if we could see God's perspective that that's not just a child, that is a patriarch of generations to come. Eternity hangs in the balance for a multitude from that one child. All of a sudden, the discipleship of one child becomes a thing that transcends time because we get God's perspective. So as a church, we, we do the same thing where we distinguish ourselves. We are Covenant Bible Church. We have a name and a sign. We do that simply to distinguish ourselves from other churches for uh, information purposes if people wanted to know where we are, how to get a hold of us, how to find us. But God is. And, and He's the one with whom we have to do. Being known by Him is really all that matters. Having His presence in our worship services. Not pews full of visitors. We we would love that. But that's not the most important thing. It's having the presence of the God who is. We could distinguish ourselves by saying, well, we are a young church. We can look at other churches and say, well, there are many things that other churches have that we don't have. That as a young church, we have great potential for good, but we also have great potential for years of bad. We're a young church. And hopefully we're able to see that there are deep ditches on every side of practically every conversation we're having. Watch churches, watch them fall. That's a ditch in a conversation they should have had, or maybe did have, maybe did have. But God is. We need Him. That's all we need. He's the only necessary being. Everything else is contingent upon Him. If we can get to God as a congregation and see His perspective, a lot of the things that we think are really important, they're not going to be very important anymore. And a lot of the things that we think are just sort of sideline issues, they're, they're not all that important. We're going to see those are actually the most important things as a church. I thought this was funny. We we meet in Hidnight, North Carolina. Now, Hidnight is such an insignificant place that whenever people ask us where we meet, we actually tell them we're from Taylorsville which is literally so insignificant that people in North Carolina don't know where it is. So we meet in a rented building in a town so small that we denominate ourselves by the next biggest town which is still so small nobody knows where it is. Now if we have an earthly perspective we think well then what, what good can possibly come from this? There is... we have no influence at all. But we serve the God who is. He's not restricted to a geographical location. He's not restricted by our size of influence or our reach. At the same time, God is not obligated to bless us or give us a fighting chance because we're small. God shuts the doors of small churches and big churches alike. And so we don't take refuge in our bigness or our smallness or our insignificance or our great reach of influence. We take refuge in God. We want God's perspective on this church. We have all of these ways that we can distinguish ourselves. What we need is God's perspective. And the book of the Revelation, I think, will help with that a lot, as well as all of Scripture. But the Revelation especially, when it walks through these seven churches, it helps us get a real perspective on what God sees in a church. In personal and family life, it's the same way. We have a lot of questions, a lot of things happening with us all. It just seems like something constantly. Now, if you dwell there, you're never going to find peace. If that's where you're living, we talked about all of the issues. If that's where you are, there's not going to be any peace. But if you remember that God is the God who is, and you take refuge in Him, there you will find grace that will lead you to peace. It's waiting upon the Lord that is the pathway to peace because God is our peace. He's the peace of His churches. Whether that church is seated in the midst of Babylon, whether that church is in the midst of Rome, whether that church is in the midst of communist China or socialist America, God is. And it doesn't matter. God's not changed. The present being of God is not changed or altered by the specific cultural circumstances that come and go and come and go throughout the generations. We've, we've seen in recent days as evangelicals just erupt in, in flabbergastedness when apostates apostatize. God doesn't change when apostates apostatize. God doesn't change when saints are burned at the stake. He's not changed in any of that. He is the one who is Right now, at this moment, God remains as he has always been throughout the ages. That's where the comfort is. We go to him and find that comfort, not in the fact that he fixes our circumstances. And that's where John starts, not in the past, but now, in the present. He wants to comfort the saints now with the God who is. What God has done in the past, we need to know, we need to see. What God will do in the future, we trust by faith He will continue to be who He's always been. But by addressing His contemporary presence first, we see that God, or that John, and God the Holy Spirit inspiring John, desires that the churches be comforted right now. We'll see how that works in a minute. The second thing we see is God's historical existence. His historical existence. It's always good to know that God is present with us. But our view of God might be reduced in our own minds if we begin to think that God has just now arrived on the scene. It's always strange if you work for an employer and you've been there for a long time. It's always strange if they bring in a new boss from the outside. Everybody just immediately hates the new boss. What are you doing here? Where did you come from? What do you know about us? You don't know how faithful I've been. You don't know how hard I worked to get inside with that last boss and now you're here and that messes up everything. It takes people a while because we just wonder if they actually have the experience with the way things have been working to do a good job. And it might be the same with God. We might say, Well, sure, He's a present help, but God, where have you been? How did things get to be the way they are? Have you been brought up to speed with the current situation? Are you able to handle it? God, we take the opinion or, or the, the objection of Martha. God, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. If you would have been here, things would not have been the way that they are. But the God of the Bible, John's God, can't be charged that way. He he's not charged with tardiness or negligence. Nobody needs to fill Him in on the circumstances or bring Him up to speed, for He has been and always has been before all things. He's been present in every moment of time leading up to the present hour, regardless of what trials may or may not be. That's what we see in these words. Grace... To you and peace from him who is and who was. Just as it could be said at any point in history, God is, so also at any point in history it could be said, God was. John uses the same verb to be, but here he places it in an unqualified, incomplete past tense. He just was. Turn around, look backwards, God was. In other words, God is the one who's always been. There's never been a time when God was not and had not always been. From an eternal perspective, this phrase addresses the reader at any point in history and dares them to turn around and look back at any point prior to the present point and reminds them that God was pick a point. God was "...since our Father is not subject to successive moments, there was never a moment when He was not, which just preceded a moment when He was. For in that former moment there would have been no God, and without a God there could not have been that successive moment. He has always been. God the Father is the necessary source and first cause of all that is. It's amazing the number of men who want to affirm second causes. Now, they don't call them second causes." They don't want to give... Well, they just don't. They don't want to give too much credit. But they'll look at an event happening and they'll say, Well, that happened because of something else. Usually it's man's free will. That happened because this happened. Well, that's a, that makes that a second cause. So men want to affirm second causes, but they can't call it a second cause because if there's a second cause, there has to be a... First cause. You have to be able to trace everything back to a point where everything started. That point, that source is God. That's the only way it works. As John Gill says, if there was not a first cause, there would not be a second nor a third, but it would all be first and all eternal. Well, everything can't be eternal. There's only one eternal. God has to be the first necessary cause and source of Everything And again, our confession says this does not do away with second causes. It establishes how can there be second causes if there's not a first cause. God is the only one who can properly be said to be Him who was. I can't say that. If I said I was, unqualified, without clarification, I'd be a liar. Now, I can say I was sick that day, I was at the store, or I was the guy in the red shirt, but I can't say I was. God can say I was. John can describe Him as the one who was. And the biblical authors affirm this without even batting an eye. This is a part of the godness of God. If He's God, He was. And He is. Habakkuk uses this in an almost an argumentative sense with God. In Habakkuk 1.12, he says, Are you not from everlasting, O Lord, my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. He immediately pulls out of that the application. Babylon is going to be used as an instrument of judgment against Israel. Are you not from everlasting? Are you not eternal? Then there will be a remnant. There will be a preservation. Now consider the relevance of that kind of thinking to the churches in the first century in a time of increasing difficulty. Things are getting worse and worse and worse. They could say with Habakkuk, Are you not from everlasting, O Lord, my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. God is Him who was, always and forever. Because He's infinite, He is eternal and immutable. This eternal, immutable, covenant-making, covenant-keeping God cannot change. Therefore, whatever happens, His people will be preserved. There's comfort there. We struggle to find com- comfort there because nobody's waiting outside to take our heads off. God being historically eternal, so also His authority is historically eternal. Psalm 93 verse 2 says, Your throne is established from old. You are from everlasting. Notice, Your throne, Your are authority It's established from of old. And then there's God's being. You are from everlasting. As long as you have been, you have been the authority. There never was a time when God was not. And there never was a time when God was not God. So by definition, being the blessed and only sovereign... There never was a time when God was not the supreme authority over all things. Now consider the relevance of that to the readers. God eternally was. He preceded all things. We quote quote Psalm 90 in verse 2 a lot. From everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Not you were God. God. You are God from everlasting to everlasting. You are presently, historically, eternally God. He precedes everything. In eternity, He decrees all things whatsoever come to pass. He declared the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done. And then in time, God works all things according to the counsel of His will so that they unfold according to the pattern of His eternal decree And so, from the very first, let there be light up until the moment when the reader in Sardis unrolls the letter from John, God the Father had always been. He had decreed all things, he had been working all things according to the counsel of his will. When the readers in, or when the congregation in Smyrna heard, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison, they did not have to wonder. If God was aware of their situation, they had already heard the greeting, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was. Nothing in their situation had escaped the purview of God. Nothing was simply the inevitable but uncontrollable consequence of sovereign man. There is with God, there is no neutrality in the events of history. Now a lot of men won't go so far as to place themselves in the camp of the open theist who says well God just wound up everything like a a watch and he's watching it spin. He just stands back, his hands are tied, now he can't do anything. They don't want to go that far so instead of having the watch they have a shelf full of watches. Some of those watches God watches very closely. and He makes sure that they keep rolling. That would be the watch of health and wealth and prosperity, um, the watch of my security as a believer, the watch of whatever the thing might be when I need God, the watch of my you know, car parts, my car working properly, things like that. God takes care of those things. But then over here you've got the watch of things like immorality and sin and man's salvation. Those are the watches God wound up. And He lets them go. He's working with these, but He's not working with these. Those are just unfolding. As I said, inevitable, but uncontrollable. They're just happening. Ultimately, in those situations, the free will of man is sovereign. Man is running amok, and God can't stop him. But God's not neutral in any event in history. Any of the things that happen in any successive generation, if it brings hardships upon the church, if it brings comfort upon the church, God is not neutral. He was. Right before that bad thing happened, God was. He didn't stop being God at that moment. Ephesians 3.11 tells us that the church, not the nation of Israel, the church, is the eternal purpose of God. And Ephesians 5 tells us that Christ's goal is to have a spotless bride. And so we know that in all things that come upon the church as a whole or individual churches, God decreed it, God preceded it, God is working it out for the purpose of having a spotless bride for His Son. All of it. He's sovereign over everything that's happening. In chapters 2 and 3, the God of chapters 4 and 5 is on His throne opening seals. It's unfolding for His purposes. He's using it for His purposes. And that should be a comfort to us. No matter what happens, God was before it happened. And God is now that it's happening. We quote Psalm 90, verse 2 a lot from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. But notice the context Psalm 90, verse 1 Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting you are God. See, knowing that God is and that God was reminds them God's people have had a dwelling place in every generation. It's not God's working out that is our dwelling place. It is God who is our dwelling place. Now, no, nobody in a time of persecution, a time of great distress, takes comfort in that act. It would be foolish for John or any leader to say, Hey, persecution's coming. Anybody excited? We're all thrilled, right? You know, let's hip, hip, hooray. Nobody does that. There's a reason that it's called tribulation. But there's also a reason why we are reminded first, not that tribulation's coming, but that God is and that God was. And everything that proceeds from that, we keep remembering God is and God was. We take comfort in the God who has sovereignly brought all things to pass. He is Him who was. The third thing we see is God's future appearance. God sovereignly rules prior to every circumstance. God sovereignly rules in... Every circumstance. Now, the last straw which should break the back of any anxiety is the promise of God's future appearance. Notice John says that this grace and peace is to them from Him who is, and who was, and who is to come. Now, if we stick to that chronological theme, is, was, is to come, even if we got the order out of whack. We can see that there's a a pattern of history. We would assume that what John's saying here is God's existence will continue in the future. God will always be. And so we would expect that that same verb, to be, would be here placed in the future sense. He is, He was, and He is being. Now, that fact is true. God is eternal. God is immutable. He will always be. There will never be a time when God is not. But the language here doesn't actually say that. If that were the case, again, that that future form of that verb would be used. Instead, John uses what is called a present participle, which might be more accurately translated, "him him who is and who was and who is coming, which is very useful in the book itself. John's audience and even the Jews prior to the coming of Christ were expectant of God's coming at some point in eschatological judgment. Remember the lenses through which we read the Scriptures. One of them is the eschatological lens. We know everything's coming to an end. And the Jews knew that. Psalm 96, 13, He comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in His faithfulness. You probably thought Paul just came up with that. On Mars Hill, no. Paul read his Bible. He will judge the world in righteousness by a man. Isaiah forty verse ten: Behold, the Lord comes with might, and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his recompense before him. Zechariah fourteen five: Then the Lord my God will come, and all his holy ones with him. I always. Like to play with people when they mention the book of the Revelation and their view of the end times. I always say, "Well, you're just assuming the book of the Revelation is about the end. Nowhere in the book does it say." Now, be reminded, all of this stuff is still way out, and the whole Bible is eschatological. All of Scripture is looking to an end. This is displayed in the book itself, which is an important theme. You remember the the, the cycles that we looked at last Lord's Day, Revelation eleven seventeen. And you can turn there if you'd like and see this. Revelation 11, verse 17. We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged but your wrath came for the time and the time for the dead to be judged and for rewarding your servants the prophets and saints and those who fear your name both small and great and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. In chapter 16 see the same thing. Verse 5 I heard the angel in charge of the waters say, "Just and you are, just are you, O holy one, who is and who was For you brought these judgments. For they have shed the blood of the saints and prophets. And you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. And I heard the altar saying, Yes, Lord God, the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. Both passages dealing with Judgment. Both passages using the same language as John's greeting here, except neither one of them need to say who is to come or who is coming. Why? Because He's already there. Judgment is already coming as the cycles progress. This language, Him who is to come, is the promise of God's coming judgment. He is the one who is coming. Now, how does that bring comfort to the saints? Remember what we saw last Lord's Day evening. As history is unsealed by Christ the Sovereign Lord, calamities and hardships will come, and the church is not excluded from these. There will be persecution and suffering, but as the persecution comes, right behind the persecution are trumpets of judgment, little warnings to men to repent. But those who do not repent receive the bowls of wrath poured out, Throughout history, the saints are vindicated and will finally be vindicated at the final judgment. Remember, God says, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. It's interesting to notice that the, all of the outworking of church history is centered around God's preservation and working in His church. Christ and His bride is the centerpiece Everything in the world is revolving around that. How do they treat the church? How does God treat them because of the way that they treated the church? That's good news for suffering saints. God's coming. It's bad news for unrepentant persecutors. God's coming. And it's a severe warning for those who want to straddle the fence in churches and play both sides. He is, and He was. And He is coming. God will come. The charade will end. And He is. And He was. And God's not fooled even now. But He's given more time to repent. Remember the parable of the persistent widow. If the unrighteous judge will act, how much more surely will God come and vindicate His own glory and His saints? He will come in judgment. And remember who we're dealing with at this point. We're dealing with God the Father. A man running through the woods with a machete at a small child would be a very fearful thing. Unless that child has been backed into a thicket by a poisonous snake and that man is her father. That's not a fearful thing. That's a comforting thing. The coming of God in judgment is a fearful thing unless He is your Father. Then it's a word of comfort. And this comfort is not something that we have to wait for. Because He is the God who is, and the God who was, and the God who is to come. One of the blessings of the gospel is is that we can have this already but not yet experience with this Comfort from God the Father, which elevates us even now above our present circumstances so that we can take refuge in Him. By nature we are rebels, but by sending His own Son in our likeness and executing judgment on Christ, God the Father has condemned sin in the flesh. So the justice of the Father has been satisfied by the work of the Son, By faith in Christ, we are united to Him by His Spirit, and by faith, we can set our hearts and our minds where Christ is, seated in the heavenlies. And so while we still dwell physically on this earth, we can take spiritual refuge in the God who is, and who was, and who is to come. No matter what, our Father is always presently near and is always coming. That's comfort to churches who are suffering. So hopefully you can see that God's existence and God's attributes are not divorced from relevant application. God is who He is and that is unaffected by anything else. But that doesn't mean that God being who He is, is severed from His people and their present needs. It's not as though the son ran off on some fool's errand and the father is just footing the bill. No, God the Father, He who is and who was and who is coming, is personally invested and involved in the history of His people. Has He ever let one fall by the wayside? No. Jesus said, My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one can snatch them out of His hand. Is God sure to vindicate His people? Yes. Then that means we... Don't have to wait for comfort. We can take comfort now in the God who is. Let's pray.